This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. It's great to be here to tell you about my research and my journey in medulloblastoma. And um, I'm going to start right at the beginning. I've been working in this space now uh, almost 20 years, and I, I got started uh, more or less by a coincidence, the, joining a, a research lab that was starting work in pediatric neuro-oncology and specifically focused on medulloblastoma and other embryonal CNS tumors. And I've literally remained fixated in this research space for the past two decades. And so at the very early stages of my PhD training, I began to venture into this field of medulloblastoma that described a highly aggressive tumor of the cerebellum or posterior fossa. It's one of the most common malignant childhood brain tumors, and it's WHO grade 4. Histologically, it's somewhat unremarkable, giving a phenotype that's really just a small, round, blue cell tumor with varying histology. We have a classic phenotype, a large cell anaplastic phenotype, uh, desmoplastic nodular phenotype. But for the most part, medulloblastoma is, is really um, you know, a small, round, blue cell tumor that is diagnosed with a peak age of onset around seven to eight years of age. We do see it during infancy and adulthood, but it really is a, a more commonly encountered diagnosis during childhood and adolescence. In terms of the, the standard of care, it really hasn't changed in multiple decades. And, and the first line uh, of um, treatment involves neurosurgical resection to debulk and Surgeons will try to achieve a gross total resection to remove the vast majority when, when safe. This is followed by a combination of craniospinal radiation and cytotoxic chemotherapy, depending on the age of the child. So in young infants, we try to use radiation-sparing therapy, try to get them to an age that's um, compatible with CSI, and then give them adjuvant chemotherapy on top of that. So... Altogether, this multimodal therapeutic approach leads to progression-free survivals that are highly heterogeneous, and they range from 60 to 95%, depending on a variety of different molecular, uh, demographic, um, sex, you name it. There's many different categorical variables that influence the outcome of these children. And so being exposed to this heterogeneity at a very early stage of my training, I became quite curious as to what was driving this heterogeneity. Why do some children relapse more frequently than others? Why do some children respond to conventional standard of care therapy and others do not? And so this was during an era that uh, we knew very little about the biology of pediatric brain tumors, including medulloblastoma. But it was really, I think, an exciting time to get involved and, and certainly um, begin to dig into the biological basis of pediatric neuro-oncology and specifically in medulloblastoma where there was a lot of unknown left to be discovered. And so through a large effort in our community by studying bulk tumor samples using, in that era, this was pre-next generation sequencing, we used DNA microarrays that would give us expression profiles of all of the protein coding genes, or we used copy number arrays that would help us dissect chromosomal imbalances, focal amplifications, deletions that might be targeting specific drivers or uh, pathways that, that might be important in the etiology of these tumors. And so what we realized early on was that it wasn't accurate to call medulloblastoma a single disease, but rather begin to describe it in the context of unique molecular subgroups. And we came to an early consensus in about 2012, this is just over 10 years ago now, of four core subgroups of the disease, including a Wnt and Sonic Hedgehog subgroup, which are driven by the neurodevelopmental pathways that are constitutively activated in those particular patients. And then what we saw more commonly, especially in childhood and adolescence, were these um, somewhat ambiguous tumors that we, we gave the generic names groups three and four because we knew so little about their underlying biology at that time. And what we could appreciate early on was that the molecular subgroups of medulloblastoma had distinct ages of onset. We see hedgehog dominating in infancy and older patients. 
whereas group three and group four medulloblastoma tend to be the, the childhood and adolescent forms of the disease. And I think what was probably the most important clinical perspective early on was looking at the overall survival of the subgroups. And what we could immediately recognize was that certain subgroups did extremely well in the context of conventional therapy and others um, unfavorably and and would require um, a more specific and effective approach to therapy. So we see in these early survival curves, we have Wnt medulloblastomas, 95% survival rate or better, in contrast, group 3 medulloblastoma significantly associated with inferior outcome, whereas the sonic hedgehog and group 4 tumors tended to be more heterogeneous and intermediate. So as a community, we were able to influence this uh, molecular subgroup structure and, and definitions into the WHO classification in 2016. And so it is now somewhat of a requirement to not only diagnose these tumors as medulloblastomas, but at the same time incorporate a molecular test that enables accurate discrimination of the different molecular groups. And so that really serves as a foundation of my research program. All of that insight came during my PhD thesis, and we've remained fixated on this heterogeneity and trying to deconstruct it uh, from a variety of different approaches using genomics as the foundation. So we've continued to rely on genomic profiling whether it be whole genome sequencing, RNA sequencing, epigenetic profiling, or getting deeper now at single cell resolution, looking at accessible chromatin or um, long read sequencing to detect structural variants or or isoforms that that might be hidden um, in the bulk tumor and and necessitate us looking at single cell resolution. We at St. Jude have access to um, different material, and, and all of this material is linked to clinical trials. And so one of the main reasons that I chose to begin my research career as an independent investigator at St. Jude was the uh, flagship medulloblastoma protocols that St. Jude is known for. And so um, during my era, SGMB12 ran for the better part of 10 years, enrolled nearly 700 children with newly diagnosed medulloblastoma. And so by working closely with the neuro-oncologists, pathologists, radiation oncologists, diagnostic imaging, we're able to really harness the the power of those trials and and more specifically, the material that we're able to obtain from children enrolled on those trials. That includes the the primary diagnostic material. When children relapse, unfortunately, um, sometimes we're able to get material, other times not. We're also doing um, germline profiling, and I'll tell you in in more detail about a specific discovery we made in the germline by sequencing large numbers of patient samples. And then finally, liquid biopsies is a a very avid um, area that we're interested in. We're leveraging now to use as a new diagnostic tool for early detection, for identification of minimal residual disease and predicting relapse. And so all of this serves as a foundation for my research program. For the purpose of today, I'm going to tell you about two stories where we're really focused on the discovery side of things, continuing to leverage our access to patient material and applying cutting-edge technologies. And so the first story I'm going to tell you is one that has really been a journey for me over the course of the past decade or more, Since we first identified the different molecular groups of medulloblastoma, we always speculated that they, in all likelihood, have their identity um, inherited from development. So what we're seeing at the bulk tumor level and and bulk tumor profiling is reminiscent of the cell of origin. And the different molecular groups of medulloblastoma, we always speculated, had distinct developmental Um, components to them, and that's what gave rise to their identity. So we've long been searching for the origins of the different medulloblastoma subgroups, and as a result of the new technologies, we can do that, or at least we can apply methods that are more specific and going to give us deep information related to developmental lineage. And specifically, I'm going to focus on the groups 3 and 4 medulloblastoma, as they have been um, eluding us in terms of their developmental biology for a long period of time. But before we get there, I will just continue to talk about technology and how um, that has given us biological insight and really driven our research. And so during my postdoc in Heidelberg, we, as, as a group, were embracing the power of DNA methylation to serve as a molecular diagnostic tool. 
And so the DNA methylation arrays at that time were the 450K array. They've been replaced by EPIC arrays. And basically they have the ability to detect CPG methylation status at hundreds of thousands of loci across the genome. And it became quite obvious to the group early on that not only would this be a tool to study CPG island methylation status or um, cis-regulatory element methylation status, but um, as you can hopefully immediately identify from this so-called brain tumor atlas, the DNA methylation signatures that we read out at a bulk tumor level are a very powerful molecular classification tool. And what I mean by that is that we can readily discriminate different entities of brain tumors. So in each, in each dot here, we're representing a patient profile based on DNA methylation. And what I've highlighted are the different molecular subgroups of medulloblastoma. So we can readily discriminate Wnt medulloblastomas from other brain tumors. We can readily identify the sonic hedgehog medulloblastomas shown here, the groups three and four forming a continuum here. And so this has really been a powerful tool to help us discriminate medulloblastoma from other embryonal CNS tumors, and at the same time, enable us to identify what we think is biologically relevant substructure within the tumors themselves. And so this is our venture into that particular domain here, where we profiled 1,256 primary tumors. So it's a very high number of medulloblastomas using the DNA methylation platform. What we see here is that Wnt medulloblastomas form a very tight, contiguous, and homogeneous group. This, this sphere of samples here are all Wnt medulloblastoma. Sonic hedgehogs we have uh, shown in red here, and there's age-dependent substructure. So we have the infant and childhood sonic hedgehogs forming one branch of this arm. The older adult sonic hedgehog tumor is another branch. But what was really fascinating for me was looking at the structure here in group three and four. So we've indicated group three samples in yellow, group four samples in green. And if I blow that up and we look at all of the 740 profiles here, we see that we begin to identify unique groups within groups three and four. And we start dicing up these parental subgroups into so-called subtypes. And so through a series of iterations and computational analyses, we, we arrived at somewhat of a consensus of eight subtypes within groups three and four, which we've indicated in different color schemes here. And what you can hopefully extract from this is that the majority of tumors are are either of group three uh, parental origin, you can see in yellow, these would all be high confidence group three tumors. Down here would be all high confidence group four, but we do have this, this region of ambiguity here. So these samples are classifying as either group three or group four. So they're exhibiting the DNA methylation fingerprints of either subgroup. And so that, this was really confusing to us. And, and looking at this structure in more detail, I thought, you know, maybe this has something to do with development, right? You, you start to see this unique structure. Maybe this is a differentiation hierarchy. And, and perhaps this epigenetic fingerprint we're reading out in the bulk tumor is really just a snapshot of the tumor cell of origin or the epigenetic state of that tumor when it, when it underwent transformation. So we're basically taking a snapshot in time of the developmental history of those tumors based on their epigenetic fingerprint. And so this was an early hypothesis based on bulk tumor profiling. And this led to um, an update in the more recent iteration of the WHO, which was um, launched in 2021, now recognizing the eight distinct subtypes of groups three and four as defined by DNA methylation profiling. They have somewhat divergent demographics, clinical features, and genetics that I won't get into um, in great detail, but we were at least fortunate that the WHO was willing to recognize these and and believe there is some uh, clinical utility to their diagnosis. And so all of that insight was extracted from bulk molecular profiling, but we've been part of a revolution the last few years as single-cell genomics has really changed the landscape of cancer biology, developmental biology, immunology. Pretty much anything that is studied in the biomedical arena now is subjected to some level of single-cell profiling. And so for this early entry into single-cell RNA sequencing, we collaborated with a group at um, Mass General Hospital, 
including Mario Suva, Brad Bernstein, and Marielle Philbin when she was a trainee um, in Mario Suva's lab, as well as Volker Hofstadt, who was a postdoc at the time with Brad Bernstein. And so in this particular scenario, we were taking fresh medulloblastomas from the operating room, dissociating them into single cells, plating those cells into 96-well plates, and then performing full-length transcript RNA sequencing on the individual cells that, that we isolated. And it was during that earlier era, I guess, of single-cell genomics that you required fresh material. It wasn't compatible with frozen uh, protocols at the time, certainly not paraffin. So we really relied on the clinical trial samples coming out of St. Jude and, and our collaborating sites in order to do this assay. And so what I'm highlighting here is taking all of the group 3 tumor cells, all the group 4 tumor cells that we profiled in this particular study, and, and throwing them all into space. And this, this space, in this case, is single-cell RNA sequencing. So we're looking at transcriptional output at individual cells or within individual cells, and more or less plotting their differentiation state. So the least differentiated cells would be... Uh, fixated or situated in in this upper left quadrant of the plot, the most differentiated cells would be here, and we're more or less plotting them according to their cellular programs of differentiation. And what I hope you can extract from this is that the majority of group 3 tumor cells are locked in a somewhat undifferentiated progenitor-like state shown here, whereas the vast majority of the group 4 tumor cells more differentiated um, in their transcriptional phenotype but you do see a lot of overlap here where tumors that are, or tumor cells that were derived from either a group 3 bulk tumor or a group 4 bulk tumor are intermingling in this intermediate space here, suggesting they might share a common differentiation hierarchy. We were able to extract this information from single cell profiling and then project it into a, a much larger cohort of bulk tumors. This is nearly 250 samples where we're quantifying these undifferentiated and differentiated cellular programs. And what we see is that the group three and group four tumors more or less order continuously. Uh, the most group three-like shown here on the left, the most group four-like, which would be the most differentiated on the right. But you do have about 15 to 20% of tumors that are somewhat ambiguous, exhibiting features that would classify them as either group three or group four. So this starts to give us some level of insight and and a cellular basis for this ambiguity between groups three and four. Having single cell RNA sequencing data for the first time derived from primary tumors, we next wanted to learn whether or not the information could be used to predict cell of origin. And I'm I'm really summarizing the work of multiple studies here where, where we... Um, at St. Jude and Michael Taylor's group at SickKids generated first-in-class atlases of mouse cerebellar development. So taking mouse cerebellar um, isolates embryonically and early postnatally, performing 10x RNA sequencing to generate atlases of all of the different cell types, lineages, trajectories present during cerebellar development of the mouse. So we have that as a reference And we can use that reference to compare transcriptomes between normal development, in this case, mouse cerebellar development, and medulloblastoma, basically looking for the best match. Can we predict which cells during normal development are most similar transcriptionally to cells derived from a sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma or a group 3 medulloblastoma, et cetera? And so what we're able to conclude from that exercise was group 4 Tumor cells look very similar to two glutamatergic populations born out of a germinal zone known as the rhombic lip, or what's labeled as URL here. And so the upper rhombic lip gives rise to all glutamatergic neurons in the the cerebellum of mouse and human. And so both the unipolar brush cell and glutamatergic cerebellar nuclei mapped or aligned to group 4 medulloblastoma. We also confirmed significant degree of correlation between sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma and the granule neuron lineage or granule neuron progenitors, and this more or less replicates um, 30 years of uh, genetically engineered mouse models and, and all of the biological correlates that have been made by modeling sonic hedgehog tumors in the mouse. What was somewhat disappointing from this exercise is there was very little confidence mapping group 3 medulloblastoma to anything in the mouse cerebellum, and so this was a bit dissatisfying. However, um, there's been a lot of new insight into 
human cerebellar development over the last few years. And so pioneering work by Kathy Millen at Seattle Children's and, and a few other groups have described the increased complexity, both anatomically, morphologically, um, and the compartmentalization that occurs specifically in the human cerebellum that's lacking in the mouse. And if we hone in on the rhombic lip, the rhombic lip is this germinal zone that, as I mentioned, gives rise to all glutamatergic neurons. There's compartmentalization in human cerebellar development that's not seen in the mouse. So there's increased complexity um, likely to give rise to the massive number of neurons that must be generated in a human cerebellum compared to a mouse. And so we thought maybe there's species-specific differences that are accounting for our inability to map cell of origin accurately in the mouse. So next we began a, a very productive collaboration with Kathy's group at Seattle. She and her team had generated single nuke or single cell sequencing at an RNA level for about 52,000 uh, cells and nuclei of the developing human cerebellum across um, a very critical stage of fetal development between 9 and 22 post-conception weeks, where a lot is happening um, in terms of different lineage trajectories being born and, and giving rise to progenitors and, and, and cell types that will eventually populate the mature cerebellum. So by teaming up with her group, we were able to obtain access to the SATLAS. We reanalyzed it to find all of the cell types and trajectories within that. And now we have the, the right species. We want to compare human medulloblastomas to human cerebellar development. And so in this heat map, what I'm showing is our comparison of transcriptomes again. So this could be bulk or single cell. It doesn't really matter. Um, but comparing the sonic hedgehog transcriptomes to all the cell types of human cerebellar development and so on. And what we identify quickly here is a high degree of correlation between sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma and granule neuron progenitors. We'd absolutely expect that based on the mouse work and, and all of the, the beautiful literature that has described the granule neuron or, origins of sonic hedgehog medullo. We also replicate this high degree of similarity between group four medulloblastoma and those two glutamatergic populations I mentioned earlier, namely the unipolar brush cells and cerebellar nuclei. And then finally, and remarkably, we for the first time identify significant correlation between group three medulloblastoma and in this case, progenitors of the rhombic lip. We can do a completely different analysis now where we take bulk transcriptomes of medulloblastoma tumors. And so in this case, it's several hundred medulloblastoma tumors. And we can deconvolute their cellular composition using that normal human cerebellar atlas to predict the different cell types that, that, that give rise to that bulk transcriptome or that account for that bulk transcriptome. And what we can see here is that the vast majority of hedgehog tumors are predicted to be comprised of granule neuron progenitors, as we see in red. This, again, aligns very well with this particular analysis. But what was most important and enlightening from this exercise is that the vast majority of group 3 tumors and group 4 tumors are predicted to contain or consist of rhombic lip progenitors, as shown in the yellow here. We also see the unipolar brush cell and cerebellar nuclei contributing to the group 4 tumor. So two different bioinformatic approaches, all of which are pointing at the rhombic lip for group 3 and group 4. So now we do a third analysis to really try to hit the nail on the head and confirm our speculation that the rhombic lip is giving rise to these two important subgroups of medulloblastoma. So in this case, we extract all of the glutamatergic cells that are predicted in that human cerebellar atlas, and we identify a very simple lineage hierarchy where we have the most primitive stem cells populating uh, this yellow region here, which we've labeled our rhombic lip stem. And there's this bifurcation where cells can make one of two choices. They can either go down the granule neuron lineage on the left-hand side. We have GNPs and then the more mature granule neurons. Or on the right-hand side, the cell fate is towards the unipolar brush cell lineage. And we have early, mid, and late states of differentiation. So using that lineage hierarchy now, we can apply computational biology, deep learning, and what we what we developed was a machine learning classifier built on medulloblastoma data to predict where medulloblastoma cells would fall along this lineage hierarchy. And so using that approach, we're able to identify a high degree of similarity or prediction that the 
Granular neuron progenitors are most sonic hedgehog-like. Again, that is consistent with all of our prior analyses. And then, importantly, we predict that the rhombic lip stem and, and early progenitors are most group 3-like, whereas the more differentiated unipolar breast cells along this lineage are most group 4-like. So once again, we're establishing this hierarchy that places the group 3 cells to the more primitive side of this trajectory and the group 4 cells to the more differentiated and neuronal side of it. So now we want to um, continue to dig into this rhombic lip and specifically the two zones that had been described by Kathy Millen's group, including a ventricular zone that um, is shown here as SOX2 positive. This would be um, a quiescent stem cell compartment of the rhombic lip. Um, and then here we have the subventricular zone that is KI67 positive. We have a high degree of mitosis that is occurring within this compartment and is responsible for the massive expansion of glutamatergic populations during development. And so, uh, again, collaborating with Kathy's group, she was able to perform laser capture microdissection on these two different compartments and then perform bulk RNA sequencing to characterize those compartments. So having those data sets, we can now look for discriminatory genes of rhombic lip ventricular zone, rhombic lip subventricular zone. They also grab Purkinje cell layer and the EGL as outgroups. And so looking at the gene expression profiles of those different compartments, we can quantify the expression of genes that discriminate those compartments in the different subgroups of medulloblastoma. And the take home here is that the rhombic lip subventricular zone and the genes that define the RLSVZ are highly expressed in groups three and four as shown here in the box plot. So once again, connecting these two subgroups to this particular compartment. So we wanna learn more about the RLSVZ and what it does, what are the genes that are expressed and, and what do they mean? How do they align with medulloblastoma phenotypes and, and profiles? And so the next exercise we did was we took that discriminatory gene set of the rhombic lips of ventricular zone, and we queried those genes for their expression profiles in the human cell atlas project. So it's a big database, many different efforts ongoing um, to define the transcriptional landscape at single cell resolution of all human tissues. And so by taking that gene set that defines the rhombic lip subventricular zone, throwing it at the human cell atlas, we get two cell types back. One, unipolar brush cells. This is a positive control. We know unipolar brush cells are born out of that rhombic lip subventricular zone. And the second was quite remarkable and surprising to us because we, we saw this photoreceptor cell type that is typically seen in the retina. And we went on to validate um, using in this case, RNA scope and situ hybridization, specific biomarkers that are uh, expressed in the rhombic lips of ventricular zone and associated with photoreceptor cells of the retina are highly expressed in the rhombic lips of ventricular zone as shown here and very specifically expressed. And this takes us back to early transcriptional profiling and enhancer landscaping, all of the other readouts that we've had over the decades now um, where we had previously seen this photoreceptor, phototransduction phenotype in group 3 medulloblastoma. So at both a transcriptional profile level, we had often seen genes that are normally expressed uh, during uh, eye photoreceptor cell development in this case or associated with phototransduction. Here we see neural retinal development. Um, all of which are read out in tumors. And so now we think we have an explanation, a developmental explanation, that those genes normally associated with the retina are actually also expressed during human cerebellar development in this particular compartment of the rhombic lip. Next exercise to continue to make the case that the rhombic lip subventricular zone is the compartment of origin for group 3 and 4 medulloblastoma we decided to look back at the genes that are targeted genetically in these two subgroups. And so, um, you know, over the years, we've sequenced many hundreds, even thousands of medulloblastomas at a bulk tumor level. We know the somatic landscape. We're, we understand the genes and the drivers that are mutated across these groups. And so plotting some of that retrospective data here, we, we recap that MYC amplifications are exclusive to group three. PRDM6 enhancer hijacking is something we only see in group four medulloblastoma. 
But there's a subset of genes that are, are targeted or mutated or activated in both subgroups. And we wondered whether or not these might give us clues that, once again, can trace back to the developmental biology and the shared developmental biology of these two subgroups. Uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, working with Rob Wixlerea, who was also um, here in San Diego, we defined a novel series of structural variants that lead to aberrant induction or aberrant transcriptional activation of transcription factors that are typically associated with hematopoietic development and leukemia. And these include GFI-1 and GFI-1b. And so during my postdoc, I realized that these structural variants target a region upstream of GFI-1b, a few hundred kilobases up to a megabase upstream of the normally um, dormant GFI-1b. And these genes are highly expressed in Megalo, DDX31, PRRC2b, BRL1, which is not indicated here, all of which are highly expressed. And we always speculated that if we could ever find the normal cells that express these factors, we might have the cell of origin for groups three and four. Um, and so that was a hypothesis that goes back more than a decade. And so we decided to now look at these genes that are re- currently targeted in groups three and four, specifically uh, for their expression profile during human cerebellar development, and specifically in the rhombic lip subventricular zone. And we confirm OTX2, which is amplified in groups three and four, highly expressed in the RLSVZ compared to the bulk cerebellum. So that would suggest enrichment or, or very high expression that's specific to that compartment. But notably, DDX31, BRL1, that locus that's subjected to enhancer hijacking, highly expressed in the rhombic lip subventricular zone. And we confirmed all of that using RNA scope again, detecting the transcriptional abundance of these particular genes of interest in the rhombic lip subventricular zone during human cerebellar development. So we think that is now an, another piece of evidence pointing the finger at this particular compartment as the origin of groups three and four. And so finally, we wondered whether or not any of our molecular or cellular insights meant anything to patients. And could any of this explain um, the anatomic presentation of groups three and four uh, based on diagnostic imaging? And so I was able to connect with Zoltan Pate, who was the chair of diagnostic imaging at St. Jude. Um, unfortunately and, and tragically, we lost him about a year ago now. He, he, he sadly passed away. But I, I worked with him extensively on the lead up. And he had this brilliant idea of retrospectively going back to, to his large cohort and inventory of diagnostic imaging data and specifically looking for small medulloblastomas that happened to be caught very early in their genesis. And so sometimes patients will present early with symptoms and come into the clinic and they'll have an MRI and the tumor is uh, quite small in comparison to a typical medulloblastoma that occupies the entirety of the fourth ventricle and is more or less engulfing the cerebellum. And so by retrospective analysis of a cohort of about 230, 240 clinical samples, he was able to identify a series of seven, very small number, seven group three and four medulloblastomas that that were below the fifth percentile in terms of their their volume uh, in the posterior fossa. And so by overlaying the diagnostic imaging data of those seven cases, those so-called small group three and group four medullos, we see that they highlight this region of overlap, specifically impacting this, this 10th lobe of the cerebellum, which is the nodulus. And what I haven't told you yet is that during human cerebellar development, the rhombic lip that's giving rise to all of these glutamatergic progenitors is anatomically housed in that nodulus, in that 10th lobe of the cerebellum, and is eventually um, engulfed, more or less, by the nodulus. And so that makes perfect sense in terms of how we're linking the developmental biology of groups three and four to the rhombic lip, and the fact that the rhombic lip is um, physically located within the nodulus. And so one important case that that Zoltan identified is this six-year-old male that was diagnosed with a group three medulloblastoma. You see this very massive um, tumor that is uh, engulfing the fourth ventricle and more or less um, occupying the entirety of the cerebellum here. But for non-oncological reasons, this child had undergone MRI nine months prior to this frank diagnosis 
And on retrospective analysis, this was missed the first go-around, but there was this very small enhancing lesion specifically in the nodulus, as shown here based on the MRI. And so this, again, anecdotal, but I think somewhat confirmatory of our suspicion that group 3 and group 4 medulloblastoma arise from the rhombic lip um, and explain the anatomic origin in the nodulus. Okay, so this wraps up um, this portion of the talk, this first story that I want to tell and leaves uh, about 20 minutes for for my second story. So hopefully I've convinced you that we've made many different insights into the developmental biology of groups three and four, and I think provide a strong amount of evidence that the nodulus, and specifically the rhombic lip subventricular zone, and progenitors of that zone are the likely origin of these groups three and group four tumors. And I think this biological insight will provide uh, an avenue of future research to better model, to better treat, and ideally identify specific therapeutic targets that are only present during development. So now switching gears to, to another story that I, I'd like to tell um, in this arena is about not where does medulloblastoma come from, but what drives medulloblastoma in the first place. And we've spent uh, a long history and a, and a, and a ton of effort sequencing medulloblastoma genomes to define the somatic landscape, the, the driver genes, the molecular processes, the pathways that are deregulated. But such little emphasis has been uh, focused on predisposition. And there are a large proportion of medulloblastomas that we still can't explain based on somatic genetics. So we've, we've long postulated that there's more in the germline left to be discovered. And before I get into this, because I'm going to focus on sonic hedgehog, I just want to mention that there's four methylation-based subtypes of sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma that we've given the very creative names, sonic hedgehog 1, 2, 3, and 4. Two of them occur during infancy, sonic hedgehog 1 and 2. Sonic hedgehog 3 is what I'm going to talk about today, and this is what's commonly seen during childhood. Sonic hedgehog 4 is the older teenagers and adults. In terms of predisposition, there are a handful of familial tumor syndromes that are well-documented to put children and families at risk of developing medulloblastoma. I won't belabor the details of those. Those include Gorlin syndrome, driven by aberrant hedgehog signaling through inactivation of patch, SUFU, Turco syndrome, which is explained by APC truncating mutations in the germline, um, giving rise to Wnt medulloblastoma, and then the Lee-Fraumeni families, where we have germline P53, which puts children and, and um, teenagers and everyone at risk of developing a spectrum of different cancers, including medulloblastoma. And so when I first started my postdoc in Heidelberg, there was a large number of sequencing efforts ongoing, including the International Cancer Genome Consortium, Pediatric Cancer Genome Project, et cetera. We had the idea and the motivation to bring all of these data sets together and really focus on pathogenic germline variation. We put together a cohort of over 1,000 medulloblastoma germline sequences, either whole genome or whole exome. Vast majority had paired tumor sequencing, molecular subgrouping, and we were initially focused on well-annotated hallmark predisposition genes, so genes that had been previously implicated in cancer of some type, whether it be a pediatric adult or, or in between. And so not surprisingly, when we focus our analysis only on well-documented cancer predisposition genes, we pull out the usual suspects, and these include SUFU and PATCH1, both of which account for Gorlin syndrome, specifically enriched in hedgehog, APC germline mutations in Wnt medulloblastoma, P53 in hedgehog, and then the Fanconi anemia genes, probably 2, BRCA2, in non-Wnt medulloblastomas. So at the end of the day, if we focus on these six genes and specifically pathogenic germline variation impacting these genes, we estimate that about 5 to 6% of all children and adolescents with medulloblastoma have an underlying predisposition. And this predisposition varies, of course, by molecular subgroup with the greatest enrichment seen in sonic hedgehog. And so, important study brings together a very large data set, describes the spectrum prevalence of germline predisposition, but somewhat dissatisfying, disappointing, ungratifying, you name it, in the sense that we didn't discover anything new. It's like, yeah, great, you found the same genes that everyone knows. Um, and from a biological standpoint, someone who's motivated and driven to make discoveries, you know, not the most exciting outcome. So fortunately, we decided to go back to this data set 
and mine it further and now get out of that window of 110 cancer predisposition genes and look at all protein coding genes. And so using the same cohort, just over 1,000 medulloblastoma germlines with a very large number of controls, 50,000 plus, we look for rare protein truncating variants. And lo and behold, we identify a very highly significant signal on chromosome 9Q targeting a gene known as ELP1 or elongator complex protein 1. And so the first reaction is this, anger, right? Because how did we miss this? How do you miss such a, a, a massive signal um, that is clearly contributing to germline predisposition in this entity? And the, the short answer is because we didn't look. Um, and so on the one hand, embarrassing, but on, the, on the, the other side of the token, good thing we found it before anyone else did and we're able to push it forward. Um, and so I'm going to tell you where we went with ALP1 from the moment of discovery here where there was an initial anger to the point of, wow, we found something really interesting that we should study further. So we quickly uh, realized that, perhaps not surprisingly, sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma highly enriched in pathogenic ALP1 germline variants, about 10% overall. But what was really quite interesting, we, you might remember from one of my first slides, we see Infant sonic hedgehogs are dominated, infant tumors in general for medulloblastoma are dominated by sonic hedgehog. We do not see ALP1 mutations in infants, nor do we see it in adults. It's really the children around six to seven years of age in terms of peak onset where we have a, a high preponderance of ALP1 germline variation. Next, we needed to figure out, well, what does this thing do and why is it mutated in the germline of children that develop sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma. And so combing the literature and PubMed and um, gene cards and, and Wikipedia, I guess now you'd use chat GPT, uh, we quickly concluded that ALP1 is a scaffolding subunit of a multi-protein complex known as elongator pictured here. ALP1 is the glue that keeps this complex together. And functionally, many cellular um, sort of functions have been ascribed to elongator, but the most accepted in the literature at the moment is the modification of transferase, and specifically modifying the uridine 34 residue of the tRNA anticodon loop shown here. And what these modifications do is they enable more flexibility with base pairing between mRNA and target tRNA anticodon, and specifically codons that are for lysine, glutamine, and glutamic acid, where there needs to be flexibility for either AA or AG ending codons. And so this is required for efficient translational elongation. Looking at the incidence of ALP1 germline mutations, we see they're more than double the frequency of SUFU patch P53, things that have been studied for decades. And what's really interesting is that it, it's truly representing the hallmark features of a classic tumor suppressor, where all of the variants are predicted to be protein truncating. They span the entire coding sequence. They would be predicted to be loss of function. And when we sequence the corresponding tumors, in 100% of cases, we have chromosome 9Q loss of heterozygosity. So the second hit occurs in the tumors as part of the transformation process. So classic biallelic inactivation of a tumor suppressor. We were able to work with our genetic predisposition team at St. Jude, namely Kim Nichols and Kayla Hamilton, uh, to look at family histories. This is a remarkable family that we featured in the paper where the proband was diagnosed with medulloblastoma. At four years of age, you see the ALP1 germline mutation. Um, we sequenced both parental DNAs and confirmed that the father is, was the carrier of the ALP1 germline variant who was coincidentally diagnosed with medulloblastoma as a teenager and later developed colorectal cancer. His immediate sister died of medulloblastoma as, as an adolescent, and there were multiple other brain tumors on the paternal side of the family, suggesting this is um, you know, inherited predisposition syndrome. Next, we wanted to dig into the molecular features of ALP1 mutant sonic hedgehog medullo, and, and I don't know how well it projects here, but basically all of the germline variants of ALP1 seem to map to one particular subtype of sonic hedgehog known as sonic hedgehog alpha or what we've renamed in the WHO sonic hedgehog 3. And if you look at the oncoprint here, this is over 220 or 230 tumors where we've got somatic and germline mutations cataloged. You can see that there's a high degree of overlap with patch 1 mutations and mutual exclusivity with P53 MCN. And this becomes more clear here 
where we confirm about 80% of ALP1 germline carriers have somatic inactivation of patch 1. We also see lower frequency amplification of PPM1D, MDM4, and other negative regulators of P53. But on the other end of the spectrum, the, the sonic hedgehog 3s that lack ALP1 germline mutation are enriched for P53 mutation, germline or somatic, MICN, GLE2 amplification. So it appears to be two distinct genotypes within sonic hedgehog 3 that have either ALP1 loss of function or P53 loss of function, but you don't see the two co-occurring. So to dig further into mechanism, we perform quantitative proteomics, again, trying to learn from patients. In this case, patient tumors that were ALP1 mutant or ALP1 wild type focused on sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma. What we can see in the volcano plot here is there's a severe bias towards upregulated proteins. So there's um, a shift in the proteome where more proteins are upregulated than downregulated. And these proteins uh, tend to be shorter in nature, as we can see here, based on their amino acid content. So the, tra- the translatome or the proteome of ALP-deficient tumors is, is resulting in upregulation of shorter proteins. Those proteins are involved in amino acid activation, protein homeostasis, protein folding, um, and, and processes that would suggest there's something going on in terms of protein homeostasis in these tumors, and, and this has been disrupted. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we see massive downregulation of the elongator subunit, suggesting the complex has been compromised. ALP3 is the catalytic subunit, and it's significantly reduced. We then confirmed the reduction of elongator-dependent tRNA modifications. This was done in collaboration with Brandon Wainwright, who's at Queensland and is an expert in tRNA biology and happened to have um, the methodology worked out for quantifying these modifications. And so using, using HPLC and mass spec, he was able to confirm that ALP1-deficient tumors have a significant reduction in the elongator-dependent tRNA modifications compared to the wild-type counterparts, as shown here, like a tenfold reduction in this particular modification. So from that study, we were able to um, come to the following model, and, and that this ubiquitously expressed complex known as elongator, conserved all the way back to yeast, expressed in most, if not all, cells of our body, is responsible for modifying these tRNAs and and promoting an efficient translational elongation and protein homeostasis. However, in the affected sonic hedgehog medulloblastomas, we have disruption of this complex. It more or less falls apart when you lose the scaffold. The other complex subunits become non-functional and are degraded. We have a massive reduction in the tRNA modifications, which then leads to a translational reprogramming. And we think that this, analogous to when transcription factors or epigenetic modulators, which are frequently disrupted in pediatric cancers, they throw off the transcriptome, which then is an efficient mechanism of disrupting normal differentiation or normal development. We think that this is more or less accomplishing the same thing, where you throw off the proteome by targeting one specific gene, which would then impact the the ability for those cells to differentiate. So in the last couple of minutes, I'll tell you what we've done since that discovery now, trying to gain mechanistic insight and prove um, the the functional basis of ALP-deficient sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma. We've used CRISPR targeting to engineer a germline model, in this case a monoallelic loss or ALP1 heterozygous model, where one allele is targeted with a 16 base pair Uh, indel, which would lead to truncation and inactivation of a single allele. Because the cell of origin of ALP-deficient sonic hedgehog is likely the granule neuron lineage, we have access to that lineage by isolating postnatal cerebellum. We can very readily purify GNPs and then use those to study mechanism and model tumor genesis. And so transcriptional profiling of GNPs isolated from the ALP-HETs, we see about a 50% reduction in transcript. This is what we would expect in the model. But what was really exciting for us is that when you lose just one copy of ALP1, at a protein level, we have downregulation of most of the subunits of elongator as confirmed by both proteomics and Western blotting. So we see a significant reduction in elongator complex, suggesting it's been compromised. Then to begin to extract cellular composition and and try to gain insight into potential mechanism, we perform 10x RNA sequencing on ALP-deficient or ALP1 wild-type cerebellum. And what I'm showing you here is 10x RNA-seq data, where we have a a natural differentiation hierarchy from early granular neuron progenitors 
um, to more mature granule neuron progenitors to the most mature granule neurons. And so this is um, done at a single time point, several biological replicates per genotype. And what we looked for was a difference in population abundance between the ALPET and the ALPWAL type background. And what we were able to extract from this exercise is that multiple clusters that are identified in this differentiation hierarchy seem to be imbalanced between the genotypes. And what I mean by that is that we have a, um, an overrepresentation of these, these less differentiated granular neuron progenitor states shown here and a reduced representation of the more differentiated granule neurons shown here. So there seems to be a shift in the balance um, during granule neuron lineage differentiation in the context of the ALP deficiency. We can confirm that by breeding, in this case, to a MATH1 GFP mouse. Those will drive um, green fluorescent proteins specifically in proliferating GNPs, which then enables us to purify through facts and quantify the abundance of GFP-positive cells in the granule neuron progenitors from both ELP wild type and the ELP deficient background. And at the end of the day, we see about a 4% increase in ATO1 GFP-positive GMPs in the context of ELP1 germline deficiency. So it's not a huge difference, but perhaps enough to put that lineage at risk of developing malignancy. We've also done proteomics on the GNPs to, you know, try and resolve what could possibly be contributing to the increased risk of tumor genesis, pulling out a number of interesting pathways and processes, including those related to DNA replication, replication stress, DNA repair, all of which seem to be upregulated. So we've begun to look at um, the possibility that the granule neuron progenitors of the ALP deficient background might have more DNA damage that's not being repaired started to look at this now. This is all preliminary, but uh, this is in vivo looking at gamma H2X, specifically um, in the ELP deficient or the ELP1 wall type background, and we quantified increased number or proportion of gamma H2X positive foci indicating DNA double strand breaks, specifically um, during S phase as as these are replicating their genomes. And so those are developmental and potential mechanistic insights, but we're also very interested to model ELP deficiency. Um, And as I mentioned, we can isolate granular neuron progenitors from the ELP deficient or ELP1 wild type background, use CRISPR gene editing to inactivate patch, and then implant those edited cells into the cerebella of immunocompromised mice, monitor those mice for tumor development. And what we see here is that when we perform that orthotopic transplantation using the ELP deficient GNPs that have been edited for patch one, we see a slight increase um, in um, the penetrance and reduced latency of these tumors compared to those that were edited on the ELP1 wild type background. When we transcriptionally profile those, yes, they match sonic hedgehog tumors, as do the wild-type counterparts. We've edited patch in granular neuron progenitors. Of course, they're going to make sonic hedgehog medulloblastomas. I, I don't think they can make anything else. Um, but what they do provide is some clue into mechanism that we're very excited about here and might explain why we see the ELP-deficient tumors in sonic hedgehog 3. Why, do they, um, why are they mutually exclusive of P53, but they occur in the same molecular subtype? And so based on RNA sequencing of the ELP deficient tumors, we see significant downregulation of P53 signaling and P53 target genes. And uh, as I'm showing you here, based on gene set enrichment. And so we can see in the heat map. So we have downregulation of P53 activity, suggesting somehow P53 is compromised. So we next decided to do the same experiment now in a P53 null background but giving us the ability to inactivate ELP1 and PATCH1 together or just PATCH1 alone. And so we use the same orthotopic transplantation pipeline and do the gene editing for either PATCH1 alone or the combination, all on a P53 null background. We see zero difference in survival, but all the mice die now. Um, And so at first glance, this isn't very uh, exciting. It's like, well, you made the same number of tumors and they all die around the same um, time point. However, if we start to look at the integrity of the elongator complex, we, we appreciate quite quickly that the elongator subunits are, are significantly downregulated in this model. So this is based on proteomics again. We have downregulation of ELP1, ELP2, ELP3, all at a protein level. 
We also confirmed the tRNA reduction in this model, so elongator-dependent tRNAs are downregulated. The elongator-independent tRNA modifications not affected. And then if we compare the proteome of the mouse model here to the proteome of patients that harbor ELP1 uh, germline mutations and, and doing the proteomics on those tumors, we see a high degree of concordance. So the same pathways and processes that are deregulated in the patient tumors are also impacted in our mouse model. And so finally, um, to put a uh, translational uh, sort of spin on this, we've teamed up with Martine Roussel at St. Jude, who's an expert in preclinical studies and has a very um, long history in devising new therapeutic approaches for mesoblastoma and other embryonal CNS tumors. We did an FDA-approved drug screen in patient-derived xenografts that were either ELP1 wild type or ELP1 mutant, and we're able to uh, pull out idesanutlin, which is an MDM2 inhibitor, as a potential uh, selective dependency or specific sensitivity in the ALP1 deficient models. And so we put together, in collaboration with Martin, this treatment regimen where mice were um, implanted with patient-derived xenograft, either ALP1 mutant or ALP1 wild type, and then given idesanutlin, which is the FDA-approved brain-penetrant MDN2 inhibitor, uh, twice daily for five days, followed by a three- to four-week interval uh, uh, where they were off treatment, and then the same treatment was imposed um, a second time around. We can see, based on the bioluminescent imaging, that we're able to prolong the survival of, in this case, the ELP1 mutant PDX. I'm not showing the data for the ELP1 wild type, which, uh, where, where we saw no effect. So we're able to prolong survival by a few weeks, um, maximally. And you can see this in the survival curve. If we specifically look at the two purple lines here, the light purple is the ELP1 mutant model that was given vehicle, the dark purple given idesanutlin. So we're prolonging survival uh, no backbone here, no standard of care. So an early result, but one that might indicate that targeting the P53 axis or specifically inhibitors of P53 um, that um, might be a, a, an approach to therapy for this particular genotype. And so based on all of the functional work that I've highlighted here, we, we've seen a bias in granule neuron lineage differentiation in the context of ELP deficiency. So we think there's a shift that's slowing differentiation or stalling differentiation. Those cells seem to have a higher incidence of DNA damage that's not being repaired or not being repaired um, as efficiently as it occurs in the wild-type background. And we've shown that the elongator complex is, is definitely compromised. By inactivating patch 1 in those cells, we are able to make sonic hedgehog medulloblastomas that demonstrate a reduced signaling activity or reduced functionality of P53. We don't understand the mechanism yet. Why is P53 compromised um, in that setting? And that's something we're actively digging into mechanistically. And based on our early preclinical studies, we think there might be sensitivity um, and um, you know, it might be an attractive therapeutic approach to target MDM2 as a potential treatment option for the ELP-deficient sonic hedgehog medullose. And so that's it. I will wrap up. And obviously, none of this work is done in isolation. I have, uh, I'm fortunate enough to collaborate with many um, awesome labs, both in the United States, across North America, and around the, the world, for that matter, that make all of this work possible, as well as um, the funding agencies for their generous contributions to my lab. And of course, at the end of the day, I'm nothing without my team that, that drives the science. And so I'm grateful for their efforts, and I'm happy to take questions either in person or virtually. So thank you very much. Are the ELP um, medulloblastomas more sensitive maybe to proteosomal inhibitors? One would think if you're making an abundance of short truncated proteins, you build up this, this, this pool of, of you know, aberrant proteins that it's going to want to yeah. Uh, yes. So that's something we're we're definitely interested in testing. And I actually had a really good discussion this morning during one of my meetings about that possible sensitivity. Uh, it's not something that we've we've actively um, tested, but it's it's definitely on our radar. It wasn't included. We didn't have proteasome inhibitors in that initial library, um, and we we chose to focus on the MDM two inhibitors because we had multiple hits. 
Very nice talk. Uh, thank you uh, for taking me through that breath of work. Um, the question really is about this L1 modification and loss, because the thing is, you know, sometimes when I look at tumors uh, under the microscope, when I bring them from the OR, I say, God, that's so beautiful in a terrible way. Mm. Similarly, I think about that um, with epigenetic mechanisms, sometimes so beautiful in a terrible way. And that is about as terrible as I can think of, right? Because we're talking about a mutation that affects something so fundamental, like a tRNA code. Right. So it seems to me that from a targeted therapeutic standpoint, there basically isn't one. There won't be one, or can't be one, right? There has to be something to compensate. And so the question is, is um, what I, P53 is like, the, the MDM2 is kind of the first thing, mm -hmm. but um, do you think about maybe in this setting having to put it back? To restore L yeah. function, yeah. So we've actually been working with a team in Australia that I mentioned, Brandon Wainwright, we have patient xenografts where we have the bilelic inactivation of ALP1 that would be beautiful vehicles for those rescue experiments and to reconstitute ALP1. Um, how would you do that therapeutically, though? Right? Is I mean, we could do that in a research lab and and try to restore functionality, and maybe those cells will then die uh, once you've um, reconstituted the elongator complex if it does in fact um, reassemble. But how would you exploit that therapeutically is the question, right? So we hope there's, there's maybe um, a therapeutic index, as we call it, right? That they would, the, the tumor cells would have heightened sensitivity to the MDM2 inhibition um, compared to anything like normal uh, that would potentially be an off target. Um, you know, that, that's the avenue that we're pursuing at the moment. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention, again, because it was a bit of a whirlwind where I tried to fit a lot in, um, is that clinically the ALP deficient Sonic Hedgehog patients actually do pretty well with standard of care right now. So their, their survival rates are, we haven't looked at large numbers. We'll be able to do that in the more recent clinical trials um, where we, we definitely have ALP1 families. But, you know, I think based on our, our retrospective analyses where we just kind of lumped together different um, ALP-deficient sonic hedgehog patients, the outcomes were 80, 85 percent, which is, you know, it's not perfect. We need to get closer to 100, but compared to P53 mutant sonic hedgehogs where, you know, we're basically facing no response and complete refractory disease, you know, I think the ALP-deficient genotype seems to be a better outcome group. Um, so we'll see uh, where it goes. But at the moment, um, yeah, we have, we have some candidates to explore, and I think the MDM2 inhibitors is um, perhaps combined with craniospinal radiation might be a heightened response. Wonderful talk. Um, kind of to add to, to that, um, if you're getting a lot of truncated proteins, you would expect that there might be an increased number of potential neoantigens. Mm. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, do you know if immunotherapy can kind of play a role here? I know it's probably not used as standard of care, but it was. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of interest in immunotherapy in general in brain tumors and in pediatric brain tumors um, in particular. We have CAR-T trials now launching for recurrent refractory uh, CNS tumors uh, and even newly diagnosed uh, hydrogliomas and DIPGs. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think if if that were an avenue worth exploring, it's just it's going to be a restricted genotype, right? So we don't see ALP1 germline mutations outside of sonic hedgehog medulloblastoma. We've screened you know, many thousands of cases through pediatric cancer genome projects, ICGC, TCGA. For whatever reason, the granule neuron lineage is, is specifically vulnerable to those mutations. Um, but I, you know, personalized medicine is personalized medicine. So if, if there was an opportunity to target something uh, specifically using immunotherapy um, in the ALP-deficient context, I think that's you know, worthy of exploration. But I think in general for CAR-T trials, for example, um, you know, they, we're looking, or we as a community, they're looking for um, antigens that are conserved across the entire disease or spectrum of diseases. That's why B7H3, GD2 have been um, commonly used right now because of their high degree of presentation across multiple different entities. Getting back to the, the rhombic lip findings, um, so that structure is, what's its purpose in, in higher mammals? 
Great question. Um, so, you know, Kathy's work has more or less determined more or less determined human specificity, and they've looked at uh, you know the primates, mice, ro- other rodents, etc., and really found human specificity to the compartmentalization. And so, the there is a vasculature bed that separates the ventricular zone from the subventricular zone that that is somehow feeding into that microenvironment and, and providing a uh, source of nutrition to the proliferating uh, populations that are resonant to that compartment. So, you know, we postulate or speculate that this, the increased demand for the massive number of cells that must be produced in a fairly narrow window um, requ- requires this compartmentalization. You have... Um, the subventricular zone in particular is where you have the mitotic region, right, where, all, where they're basically um, rapidly expanding um, and highly proliferative. And I think that's the particular window that's, that's vulnerable. Why is that not seen in the mouse? Well, is it because there's orders of magnitude fewer neurons that need to be produced? I mean, that's part of it. It doesn't entirely answer your question, but humans have evolved to require that compartmentalization. And um, I think the reason that we've struggled to, to model these subgroups accurately in the lower species, and, and there, are, there are several different flavors of group 3-like mesoblastoma that have been modeled in the mouse, almost 90% of them are, rely on MYC overexpression of, and, and targeting either constitutively active MYC or very high levels of MYC to a progenitor cell population. And MYC is able to transform most cell types. Um, so I think we've struggled in the mouse because that, that population is either so minuscule that we can barely detect it based on single-cell profiling or it just doesn't exist. And, you know, I highlighted the photoreceptor identity, uh, you know, readout that we've now linked to the rhombic lip subventricular zone. We've never seen evidence for that in the mouse. And so, yeah, I think there's still a lot of, of really important basic developmental biology that is, is going to be enlightened through you know, the single cell and spatial profiling that's ongoing now in the context of human cerebellar development. Apologies if that's not like the best answer of why humans have that compartmentalization, but they do, and it's pretty specific. Really highlights the difference between mouse and human. We can't do it. We can't model everything accurately in the mouse. No, absolutely, and that's why organoids, I think, are, are going to be an important um, area of research in the future in the human cell context. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.